This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Are you eyeing your New Year resolutions? Tis the season where many of us vow to improve our health and get more active. The sign-up promotions at gym chains are tempting, only $9.95 a month at some gyms. But the big gyms are often crowded, and the promotion might be tied to a contract that you can never cancel. Or worse, the gym is uncomfortable or unsafe. Fortunately, there are some alternatives here in Chicago to the typical big-box gyms. Annie Padrid owns The Space. That's a gym in Hyde Park. Alex Nsiakumi co-owns Paramount Fitness and Personal Training in Logan Square. And Jake Goldstein co-owns The Gym Pod in West Loop. Annie, I'll start with you. Tell us about The Space and why you wanted to open an independent gym. So I was a trainer for about seven years at our local Bally Sports Club in Hyde Park. And the first thing that they tried to teach me was not um, how the rotator cuff functions or how the knee joint moves. It was basically how to be a car salesperson. And the idea for me that somebody's body could be treated like a number um, really uh, was difficult for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it was sort of all about the contract and the dollar signs and how much you know you were able to sell every month. And, and as far as I'm concerned, um, that's not really the way that fitness is supposed to be approached. Um, you know, and it sounds cliche, but, but it's just not. So, um, I sort of, I used it, I I guess as a watering hole. Um, and for like the next seven years, I essentially took every class I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned about, you know, cold calling and what that looks like and is it effective and efficient. And, and I just sort of honed my skills. Um, I loved being in the gym. I loved fitness. I played soccer at the university of Michigan. I love the weightlifting program there. And, um, in 2011, in November, um, we got a call that LA fitness was going to buy us out and they were essentially going to cut our pay by like, I don't know, like 78 or 79%. And I just, in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to have to give up my condo and my car. Like this isn't going to work for me. So I called my brother who's in finance and I was like, help. I need all the help (laughs) I can get put together an Excel spreadsheet for me. This is what I make every month with my clients. If every single one of them comes with me, how much money do I have to, to do this? So he did. I basically spent all of Thanksgiving that year hysterically crying in a fit of anxiety. And he put together this sheet for me and I had a very specific number and I took it to the commercial real estate guy, um, uh, in, in Hyde Park who runs, you know, basically all of Mac properties. And I said, this is how much money I have. How do I get a space and how do I open my own gym? Mm-hmm. And through negotiations, yeah. et cetera, we were like off and running in the next six weeks. The rest is history. Alex, same question to you. Uh, yeah, for me, I think, um, I started out, uh, here in Chicagoland, uh, running a mobile business. So I was actually, you know, initially kind of driving around to people's homes or offices or parks when, uh, when my business first started. 
Um, and then my business partner and wife uh, joined me after doing that for a few years. We opened our first uh, physical location uh, here in the Logan Square area, and it was really just um, uh, piggybacking, uh, to be piggybacking on the, the previous statement, is really just kind of create a, uh, a warm and open environment that was more customized and personalized than what I had seen, um, you know, previously working at a big box gym. Um, yeah. We've grown and expanded here in Logan Square and have kind of a gym space that people can use on their own, as well as do personal training or some classes. And I think as we grow, our biggest thing is kind of how do we meet people where they're at versus like a one-size-fits-all and make sure it's a warm and welcoming space yeah. um, where they can kind of be comfortable, you know, no matter what their previous experience is, you know, in, in the gym. So. Yeah. Um, I love yeah, that. Meet people where they're at. So, Jake, over to you. The gym pod, that's also this uh, diff- different approach to, to the typical gym. Tell us how the gym pod works and how you came up with that idea. Yeah, absolutely. So I will be honest. I'm a fitness transplant. I, um, I've been in and out of gyms my entire life. I, I, was a, uh, I was a big swimmer growing up. I ended up swimming for Yale um, after school, you know, still into fitness. But, but my career is mostly focused, believe it or not, on Wall Street. I was an investment banker. I was in the hedge fund world. I left all of that behind very, very gladly to come over to the fitness world. Okay. Um, where about two years ago, I um, launched these shipping container gyms. So think 320 square foot modular gyms uh, right in Fulton Market. And the premise was simple. I mean, yes, there were the pandemic tailwinds of, you know, having access to your own space, but it was much, much more than that. There was a clear issue for me uh, in my fitness journey and, you know, being in gyms my whole life that... Um, you know, there was a privacy element, wanting your own space, reliability, wanting to come in and really uh, hone your own workout that you could rely on having a squat, you know, a squat rack or a bench press and not have to switch out your, you know, leg workout for chest that day just because some, you know, some, some yeah. sweaty guy was hogging up the bench. <laughs> so um, I went out and I launched these uh, 320 square foot modular shipping container gyms, uh, ran it for about two years, and, and it got to the point where we were thinking about scale and it made a lot of sense for us to uh, actually, because again, this was under my own brand, which mm-hmm. was not the Gym Pod at the time, uh, to actually sell to the Gym Pod, uh, who was expanding into the U.S. because they've got tons and tons of pod growth internationally. And we could talk about that, um, but their, their technology and their t- and the tech enablement of the entire uh, online to offline booking process made a lot of sense, and it paired nicely with our modular concept. So now yeah. we're fully operating under the Gym Pod. Interesting. And so, Annie, if you had to sum it up for us, what would you say makes your gym different from others? I I think, honestly, it's just the way that you feel when you walk in. I mean, you know, we we sort of moved from um, a very wealthy area in Hyde Park, um, predominantly white, to what used to be, I guess, eight to 10 years ago was considered the color line in, um, on the south side of Chicago. Um, and during the pandemic, when, you know, it basically became super trendy to be racist, um, I looked at my husband, who's a black man. We have a, have a biracial daughter. And I said, you know, the only thing that I know about the only thing that I really know well, at least in my own humble opinion, mm-hmm. is fitness. And fitness is supposed to be universal. It's not just supposed to be for rich people, um, at least done well. Yeah. And so I, I said, I think we need to, we need to make a little change, which, which ultimately was a huge change. So, um, we moved over to 47th and Drexel. 
Um, and we made it accessible for essentially everybody. We didn't change the standards. We, we didn't, we, we didn't even really change, you know, much about it except size. Um, we scaled it. So now it's about 15,000 square feet as opposed to about 7,000, which is w- what we were prior. Um, and we made it a place that people can literally walk in and just sort of take a deep breath and feel like whatever they need to do or say that day is completely acceptable. Um, the idea is, you know, if, <laughs> if weight loss and those kinds of things is something that you're interested in, of course, that's something we can help you with. But ultimately, those are sort of like nice little side effects. If it's something that you want, um, ultimately, it's do you leave the gym feeling better than when you walked in? Mm -hmm. And did we help you to get there? Yeah. Well, we asked folks uh, as we were preparing for this uh, to to send us voicemails about any gym horror stories that they might have. I want to play one that we got from a caller who signed up for a gym contract and for a personal trainer at a big gym. We did like a little assessment and then we did uh, exercises for like a couple weeks and then one week he just didn't show up and I'm like okay something happened I tried calling him didn't pick up the phone and so I called to talk to the gym people and they're like oh yeah he had a little disagreement with the owner of the gym and I was like okay this is interesting I wait again and I think I waited for about another month I got a new personal trainer and then I met up with him and for another assessment then worked out once and then after that week he was gone. Um, this is now personal trainer number three. And then this one, uh, we again do the assessment and then, uh, we work out a couple times and then, uh, he texts me out of the blue and says, Oh, by the way, I've been let go. Yeah. Does this story surprise you at all, Alex? Um, unfortunately, no, I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of horror stories, you know, as people are coming into kind of our space looking for something different. So, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, what the fitness industry is, has done and kind of how much money is a driving factor versus helping people being the driving factor. Mm -hmm. Jake, a lot of folks are, um, intimidated by by going to the gym, especially when it comes to approaching the, the, the weightlifting section. Um, and by a lot of folks, I mean me. Uh, so so why do you think that is, first of all, and, and how do the pods help? Yeah, for sure. And if I can, I, I do just want to address sort of the previous topic. The, the trainer switch? Yeah. So <laughs> hot take here, but, you know, um, look, big box gyms use trainers and personal training as profit centers. And the entire economic model of a big box gym is broken and flawed. It is fundamentally designed to keep trainers earning $60,000 a year. When gyms set the rates of trainers and take percentages and tell you how many people you need to train a week and at what price, you're not in control of your economic destiny. Mm. So what we do at the gym pod is, you know, we, we fully allow you to consume what you want as a trainer. If you wanna come be an independent trainer, charge your rate, we will gladly let you rent the space, and we hope that you're charging four or $500. And we're not taking a percentage. We're charging you for the space rental. And I think that, you know, part of why uh, this whole concept started was just to empower the personal trainer to come in, um, be in charge of their own business, and have a place where they feel safe to, to grow their own business um, and okay. succeed economically. Um, but with respect to you're quite you can see I'm very very passionate about oh no that topic. I love this I love this yeah I mean and and I was asking you about just that intimidation piece yeah. right and how the pods can help with that yeah that's, so, that's part of what holds some people back yeah there, there are lots of statistics out there about body consciousness and that being a huge hurdle for people getting into the gym um, and wanting to start their fitness journey 
And, I mean, it's just a fact of life, right? And part of what we want to do, uh, what we're doing with the Gym Pod is when you book a private you know, modular space for yourself where you can listen to your own music. You can run on the treadmill. You don't have to worry about all these creepy people, you know, sending looks your way. You can just focus on your fitness journey. Um, it empowers you to stay committed. And, you know, I'll tell you right now, I wasn't in a gym pod, you know, earlier this morning, but I was at home on my Peloton and I loved being there in my own private space, not judged. Um, and really able to focus on my workout. Very important. Annie, picking up where, where Jake just left off, you know, a common experience I know for women, it's that feeling that they're being objectified at the gym or just even outright just hit on by other gym members. So how do you create that comfortable environment for all your members at your gym? So um, sort of to touch on what Jake was saying um, with respect to the personal trainer, um, we do the exact same thing. So we rent space essentially by the hour by the person um, and trainers get to run their own business. I mean, they, they run it under a sort of a, a very loose protocol that I have established based on my experience and what I think works. Um, but but under that, um, you know, you get a trainer that comes and says, hey, I have some clientele and I, I would like to you know bring them into Hyde Park or <clears throat> the south side of Chicago. And how do I do that? And it's just, it's such an important, I mean, it just, it feels to me like when you walk into a gym and you see all of, you know, all of this incredibly big equipment and all of these trainers, you don't want somebody that's going to say to you, so are you interested in, you know, snatching your waistline? Um, and, and you want somebody that, that doesn't say to you, um, you know, did you shop at Lane Bryant this morning, which is actually an experience that I've had, you know, people uh, to, to tell me about. And so ultimately, these trainers, I say to them, one of the things you are never, ever going to be allowed to do is sell what you do to the people that are already in the gym or make comments about bodies. Mm -hmm. It's just not something we do. So it's a, I set very clear expectations when they come into the gym to sort of discuss this, you know, can I rent space from you so that we're all sort of on the same page and, and, and everybody recognizes that. Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, I wonder what it means to you for, for a gym to be inclusive, truly inclusive. Got it. I think, uh, I think for us, uh, to be truly inclusive, um, we really try to think about everything with the gym going experience kind of from the moment you walk into the door to how we're designed. So a large percent of our folks aren't like gym rats. They didn't go up in the gym. They had a horrible experience in the gym in the past. They hated exercise since PE in the fifth grade. So in our design and kind of how we made everything, from the music we play to how the, the space is laid out, we try to make it feel more like a bookstore or a coffee shop, places that they're comfortable going, mm -hmm. and it just happens to be gym equipment in there. So that's from the music we play to, the you know, how much light there is coming in the windows to the number of plants there are, um, just making it feel like a slightly more laid-back space where there happens to be exercise equipment is something major we did um, in making it inclusive. Um, for us also yeah. – um, you know, whether we're people are coming in to train with us one on one or coming just to use gym equipment, um, something that's important for us is just to make sure all our members are also on the same page. So kind of having a talk and a conversation when all our members come into the door of, okay, here's the expectations of our gym, here's kind of what's expected of you to respect others, respect the space, and just kind of make sure everybody's on the same page. Yeah. And then if they're not comfortable with that, hey, maybe this isn't the place for you. There's plenty of other gyms kind of you can go to down the street. Mm, that's good. And, and Jake, what comes to mind, too, is affordability, right? Because that's a, that's a concern for a lot of people. So how... How is Jim Pod trying to address that? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the facts are the facts. On average, folks who have gym memberships 
tend to utilize those gym memberships about one-third of the time, so about 33% of the time. If you're paying for a $200 a month membership, there's plenty and plenty of dollars that you're wasting every single month. So we approach affordability through a consumption model and a transactional approach of pay for what you use, nothing more, nothing less, and offer it at an affordable rate. And, you know, you can't change how often someone uh, – y- y- you can't change people's will, and if someone's going to come to the gym – one-third of the time over the month, it uh, they should be paying for just that and that alone, and that's what we provide at the gym pod. There are no contracts. There, there are no you know 12-month agreements, nothing like that. You get on the app. You book a session. It's your, it's entirely your space, and if I can say so myself, we provide you know some pretty incredible tech uh, and equipment that is uh, truly unique to the industry. Yeah. Well, Annie, we're, we're just about out of time here, but, but leave us with this, because we know a lot of people are soon going to be making those resolutions, as I mentioned – trying to improve their fitness, but we also know that a majority of folks tend to fail to stick to this. So so what have you found in training that, that you think leads folks to success when it comes to improving their health? Uh, find somebody that you like and that you enjoy being with and work out with them. Um, whether it's that you check in with them because they couldn't go with you that day, whether you, you send them a message and say, hey, I'm heading to the gym now, Tell me I'm doing a great job. If it's a trainer, um, if it, if that's within your wheelhouse or if that's something that you want to do, get, get, get with somebody that you really enjoy being with, that you enjoy speaking with because it doesn't, you don't have to like go into the gym and get your, your butt kicked. I mean, yes, some people really love that, myself included. Um, and that's wonderful, but really it's about the movement. It's about the functional training. It's about, you know, your, 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 your sense of empowerment, um, as a human being. Um, and, yeah. and that's in my opinion, that's sort of my experience has been the absolute best way to kind of stay on track is just get somebody you like and do it with them. That's Annie Padrid, owner and trainer at The Space. We had Jake Goldstein, co-owner of The Gym Pod, and Alex Nsia Kumi, who's co-owner of Paramount Fitness and Personal Training in Logan Square. Thank you all. We just heard about some gyms in Chicago working to create inclusive environments where anyone is welcome to work out and improve their health. But what do we even mean by health in 2022? In popular culture, health is often measured by things like body mass index, weight, or whether you appear too skinny or fat. But those metrics are often superficial and inaccurate predictors of wellness. So why do they continue to be so prominent? Our next guest thinks that part of the answer can be found by examining Christianity and the ways it's informed our beliefs about body image and health. Joining us now is Michelle Lewicka, professor of religion at Concordia College in Minnesota. So you're a professor of religious studies, so I don't think that folks would immediately expect you to be talking about things like health and exercise. So how did you make this connection? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, through my own experience, I'm a recovering bulimic, and so I've had a long-term interest experientially in um, my relationship with my own body. But in you know through my studies in graduate school, I started to see that my own experience was shaped heavily by religion. And the more that I studied, um, and my focus has been on Christianity and culture. The more I studied narratives about women's bodies in Christianity, the more I recognized that many of my own super unhealthy patterns were fueled by, by stories about our bodies that I had unwittingly absorbed, mm-hmm. including the idea that female appetites are dangerous. Oh, tell us so more. Any, so how, how, well, does, how does using a religious framework help us to understand our ideas of health? Well, let's, let's start with two things. Um, one, just etymologically, 
the word health is related in Latin to the word salvation. And oftentimes in our culture, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in when we listen to religious discourses on salvation, in particular Christianity, which has had the most power to influence American culture, mm-hmm. we assume it's about some otherworldly existence, what happens after you die. But in the ancient world in which Christianity arose, salvation was much more about an embodied kind of healing. And that's captured in the root of salvation, which is related to salve, which means good health. So when you think about when we're pursuing good health, we're hearing religious echoes of the pursuit of salvation, or we're maybe um, experiencing you know, that pursuit, not consciously as a religious quest, but the templates that religion and Christianity in particular mm-hmm. have provided really shape that quest. Even if you think about um, the way that we think of a good body, it's a body that has, it's not just aesthetically good, it has moral overtones. Health these days has moral overtones. And whenever you hear moral overtones, you should notice the footprints of religion on our notions of good. And think about the way we conceptualize and pursue good bodies. Oftentimes, goodness is associated with, uh, it's, it's created through suffering. Um, that's a religious narrative, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That the more we suffer, you know, suffering is um, virtuous. We also associate uh, good bodies with control, and we associate control with virtue. And that was the second point I was going to make in my own um, recognizing my own experience. The epiphany happened for me when I was um, studying the writings of the early church fathers. And I, I should say that I've picked on Christianity. My analysis and my critique has focused on Christianity, although there are also resources in that tradition that can be helpful. But mm-hmm. Um, the critique has focused on Christianity because it is the religion that's had the most power to shape our culture and also because it's the tradition in which I was raised. Right. But the epiphany for me came when I was studying the writings of early church fathers and I noticed they just kept going back to Eve as um, kind of uh, the source of how sin got into the world. And if you think about that second creation story, where it's a story of the fall. Think about the way sin and death come into the world. I mean, they come into the world through the act of a woman eating. Mm-hmm. And I had never thought about that, the power of that narrative and the residual power of that narrative in my own experience. And certainly it resonates with the experiences of many contemporary women. Not that they're thinking about Eve when they feel shame about giving into their supposedly disobedient and unruly appetites, but that there's a kind of echo of that story uh, throughout our culture. I see. So those are some of the ways I connected the dots between my own experience, my research, and then the experience. And my research has focused primarily on women, but, you know, increasingly men are recruited. Yeah. Well, you're you're giving me several aha moments right now. I know that you've also mentioned elsewhere, Professor, many younger folks don't identify with any religion and, and perhaps they yeah. fill that void with different institutions or ideas. Just talk a bit about that and how it might connect to fitness or health. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what, you can think about our common quest for or Americans quest for a better body 
as a kind of devotional practice. And in many ways, it's uh, a, it could be seen as a kind of replacement for what has historically been a religious quest, not just for salvation, but for meaning, because the pursuit of wellness, which is, you know, can be an incredibly important pursuit, but oftentimes it's marketed as in ways that put us at war with our body. And I think especially for people who are disenchanted with traditional religion, it can serve what has historically been a religious function, which is to provide a sense of meaning and purpose and to give us rituals and moral codes and a sense of community and a salvation myth, Mm -hmm. all of which were historically the job of traditional religion. So we don't recognize the quasi-religious um, valences in our pursuit of wellness, but I see them um, everywhere. Mm. And once you start to think about it that way, you'll start to notice it more. It's in our language, it's in our practices, it's in our ways of thinking. Well, you've also said in your books that it's uh, it's in our self-help books and commercials right. that, that talk right. about wellness. How do you see Christian ideology or language factoring into the message of, of that media? Well, I think about... You know, I think about some of the things that are in traditional Christian, some of the ideas in traditional Christianity, some of the narratives. Let me just give you an example. There was a third century church father named Tertullian, and he talked about the body as the pivot for salvation. Mm-hmm. And he used that. That's not that's the English translation, but you get the idea. The body is the pivot of salvation. In other words, how you treat your body and what you do with your body will determine whether you are quote saved, whether you're healthy or whether you are damned, whether you're unhealthy, if I'm going to translate that into modern language. And that is how we often relate to our own bodies today. If I control my body, I'm good. I feel good. If I lose control, I feel bad and I deserve to be punished. I deserve to, you know, the religious equivalent of that is I deserve to be in hell. Mm. So these, um, Religious narratives, I think, show up even in and maybe um, unwittingly in people who are not religious. So it doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. I think my point is that these religious narratives are part of our cultural heritage. And our cultural heritage includes these religious narratives. In American pop culture, there tends to be an obsession with with thinness and Mm -hmm. a, a focus on metrics like body mass index and weight and body fat, mm-hmm. that those are the key indicators of whether you're healthy. What do you think gets missed when, when we relate to health using those measurements? You know, those measurements really pull our attention away from what I think is the fundamental question of health. If we're going to talk about what does health really mean, it has to at least include, if not prioritize, our relationship with our body. So the BMI, the body mass index, for example, doesn't talk about how are we relating to our body. And in that sense, it often can become a tool for just beating ourselves up, for not having a more friendly relationship with our body. So for me, a healthy relationship with your body is going to be produce healthy outcomes. Mm -hmm. Pursuing those kinds of metrics without examining our healthy relationship without examining our attitude towards our body. For example, if we absorb some of the narratives of self-help and commercial culture, 
we are absorbing language and ideas that are really combative and almost colonial when you think about the language of conquer your appetite or um, blast belly fat. Yeah. Look at the covers of some of those, you know, magazines or social media feeds. You oh, know, yeah. you can control um, your appetite. You can triumph over any kind of physical disability. This is not just about um, thinness, although that tends to be one of the most shared ways we pursue health. Um, but it's also all kinds of other um, ways that our bodies elude our control, whether it's aging, we're supposed to defy aging, mm -hmm. we're supposed to go to war against disability, we're supposed to conquer chronic illness, as if we are this kind of omnipotent, you know, we've, we've created this image of ourselves as omnipotent human beings that reflects our traditional understandings of God as this omnipotent being. Yeah. And um, both are really problematic when it comes to developing a healthy relationship to our bodies. So what sources do you think then that we could turn to for ideas about health that, that would lead to a more nurturing and more mm. compassionate view of our bodies? Yeah. Well, let's start with, um, I, I love that there are gyms out there that you're talking about that are promoting more inclusive understandings of health. And just as in religion, there are mentalities that are, you might say, one size fits all um, that are dangerous and damaging and have been used for colonial purposes. We can translate um, or transfer the idea of more uh, appreciation for spiritual diversity into more appreciation for physical diversity. Mm -hmm. So pathways to health that um, affirm that health comes in more than just one size. Yeah. The health at every size movement is really great at articulating that. Um, they use a lot of peer reviewed research to support the notion that health can happen in a variety of different kinds of bodies and that a healthy relationship to our bodies includes self-love and yeah. shame is counterproductive to that. So I think we can find um, messages even in traditional religion that yeah. counter um, those shame narratives. The idea that your body is a temple is a beautiful message if we don't turn it into um, one that requires us to go to war right, with our right. bodies. We'll have to leave it there. That's Michelle Lewicka, professor of religion at Concordia College. Very interesting. Thank you, professor. Thank you so much. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrew Merriweather, and it was edited by Brenda Ruiz. If you want more conversations like this, consider subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, be sure to leave us a rating. It really helps more listeners find us. All right, that's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great start to your week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.